Good to see you. My name is Brad. Happy to be with you today. Yesterday at my house was clean the garage day. How many of you have garages to clean? Okay, one, two. Okay, Dan, you clean the garage? Okay. I tried it with the, the children, uh, with my boys, and it was for them, let's play with everything that dad brings out. And then ask, what does this do? Which is really funny because they go to the tools and say, what does this do? Well, that's a hammer. What's it do? It's in the title. It's a hammer. It hits nails. And they get on and on, and then finally they go, what is this? How many know what this is? Uh, whoa, come on, Jonathan. Paint roller. Uh, they were trying to uh, dig up weeds with this. Uh, it was kind of fun to watch. Uh, and then anyone know what this is? Paintbrush. Now, what are these things designed for? Painting. Our uh, hammers designed for painting? Are screwdrivers designed for hammers? Are chairs designed for ladders? Uh, yeah, if it's a small thing. Is it necessarily wise? No. How many of you have fallen off of a chair thinking it was a ladder? I'll just raise my hand and say, yes, I have. There are certain things in our lives that are designed for a specific purpose. It's almost why designers design things. And when you use the thing, when you use the paintbrush to paint and not hammer in a nail, although I've done it, it works a lot better, right? You all, like these paintbrushes and like these rollers, have all been designed for something. We are all shaped for something. And today I want to talk about what we're shaped for. If you have your Bibles, uh, we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. To be honest, we're going to be all over the New Testament. That's going to fall in a minute, so don't get scared. Uh, we're going to be all over the New Testament, but we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 2, we are in the middle of our Invitation to Wholeness um, a series. We've talked about what we're invited to when, when Christ calls us. We're invited to know him better. We're invited to chase after him, become his disciple. And that's what we're trying to get to, a discipleship way to we, that we can become more and more like Christ. In Ephesians, uh, Paul is talking, and, and we've been bouncing back and forth in Ephesians, but Paul starts Ephesians with, this is who you are. Then he goes to, because you're this way, this is how you should live. Uh, today, I want to focus on these two verses that tell us what you and I are shaped for. You and I are shaped for service. And this is the part where most times people will either turn off the stream or just check out because it feels like there's going to be a guilt trip. Trust me, I don't do guilt trips. I don't respond to them. Um, I, I, I loathe them. I don't like to give them. So I'm not going to give you a guilt trip today. I just want to show you that you are shaped specifically to do good things. In Ephesians 2 is one of the most clearest expressions of the gospel. In fact, if you've been in church for more than a minute or uh, some time, you might have heard these two verses. Uh, I grew up in this thing called Awana, and we had to memorize these verses, and they're lodged in my brain. You might know them too. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it is by grace, you've been, if you know it, read along. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so no one can boast. There is a chunk of theology in this verse, in these two verses. And you go, wow, that's amazing. And a lot of theologians and pastors go, these two verses are awesome. Because first, we see the first thing, grace. We're saved by grace. Grace means a gift, something that you didn't deserve, but you got it anyway. Any of you have gifts like that? Yes, we all have something where we didn't deserve something amazing, and we got it 
anyway. I like to think of my wife as a picture of grace. There is no other person that can ever put up with me except for her. That is grace. The other thing that we say, thank you for the amen. The next part we see is in, the, in the text as you pick it apart is it is grace through what? Faith. Now faith isn't just a blind leap. Faith is in the Bible is a very active word. Not only does it have to do with believing something, but it is believing something to the point where it changes who you are. God's grace through faith motivates us that when we say yes to him, we start living and chasing after him. Faith is also a gift from God. It is not, it's not only salvation and grace that's a gift, but also the life and breath and your pulse and personality and everything is grace. And from that grace, we have the ability to believe. Then there's a contrast as we work our way through it. We're not going to be only here. We're going to get to the next couple verses. Don't worry. There's a contrast that says, not by works, so that none of you can brag or boast. At the core of most religions is this idea of working. Uh, be it the Eightfold Path with reincarnation and karma or the five pillars of Islam or other religions, there's this idea that says, great, here's God and here's a ladder and the way you see God is by climbing up every single rung of those ladders until you actually achieve something. That's what other religions do. Jesus, it says, is very clear in Scripture, doesn't play that game. He doesn't play the religious game. The, the, the cliche is Jesus didn't come to start a religion, he came to start a relationship. One person knows the cliche, so I guess it's not that cliche anymore. Jesus came to, so that we can have a relationship. You cannot save you. Only God can save you. That's why it's salvation by the gift of grace, not by your works. Now, these two verses fall very victim. Is that the, that's not the right way to say it, but you get it. They fall victim to this idea of biblical nearsightedness. It's this idea where none of you do it. We have friends who do this. We, we never, ever do this. But where you find two or three verses that agree with you. And then you say, this is what the Bible says. Whether it's anything you want to do. Oh, God wants me to buy this car. I'm going to find a Bible verse that says go buy the car. And then you see the apostles were in one accord. And you're like, I'm going to go get an accord. Honda. <laughs> and so we find things that agree with you. That's called biblical nearsightedness. So when we have biblical nearsightedness to this verse, we come out saying, for by grace we are saved through faith, not by ourselves. We can't work for it so that no one can boast. And then we stop. We forget that, there, that Paul is on a roll here. He's been on a roll since Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, and he's, he's getting to it. And we think 2, 8, and 9 is the point. But verse 10 happens. And when we stop at verse 9, we miss everything else that Paul has said. We think the gospel ends there. Salvation then becomes this heavenly transaction where Jesus takes your sin, gives you a bus ticket, and says, go wait at the bus stop till I get back or you die, whichever comes first, and just sit there and wait. But when you get to verse 10, here's what it says. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You are saved, yes, by faith, absolutely. Nothing you can do to earn it. So you cannot boast. However, you were saved in order to do stuff, which is Brad's translation. Paul says that you are God's handiwork, which literally means you're a piece of work. All of you. Turn to your neighbor, and very kindly, your voice tone matters here, say, you're a piece of work. 
You're all pieces of work. Voice tone matters. Don't be saying. This idea of a piece of work is this deep Greek word that means that you are a bundle of experiences, personality, supernatural giftings and talents that are sitting, that, that because of that, there is a bunch of stuff sitting in front of you that you can do and nobody else. They are designed for specifically you. And all of it is laid out in front of you, waiting for you to take part in it. Verses 8 and 9 says, None of the things that we're doing grant us salvation, but our salvation grants us the ability to do all of these cool stuff. So when we're saved, whether it happened when you were 6, 16, or 60, you were brought into a relationship with God because of God's free gift to you. You responded to His grace. Wesley calls it a provenient grace, that we're able to respond to it. Then you're brought into a family. You were adopted in. And just like every family, my boys learned this yesterday with the garage, there are chores to do. There are things that we get to do. And that's the reason why, and it would be really cool if this happened, you and I aren't zapped away just to heaven as soon as we accept Jesus. It would be a lot easier if that happened. It would be a lot easier for people to believe this too. But we're not zapped up because God has listed out a whole bunch of stuff for us to do. I didn't understand this. In fact, part of my story is I, I, was, I was the one who was saved at six with, on my parents' brown carpet in the, in the coffee table praying because I saw a, a picture of hell on my buddy's shirt and it scared the hell out of me. And so I went inside and said, I don't want to go to John's t-shirt. And my dad clued in. My dad saw the shirt. It was one of my brother's friends. And, and he said, okay, here's what we do. And, and he led me through salvation. Now, it wasn't until high school at a Hume Lake camp down in California where it finally triggered. I'm saved. Yes, heaven's taken care of. But the fact that I don't have to work for my salvation anymore frees me up to a life of service. And it took a while to get. And honestly, it takes a while. Following Jesus means that your life is in service to him. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 10, 39, if you really want to find your life, you got to lose it for his sake. Now, that's a hard verse to digest. Uh, and you won't find it on license plates because it means something. It means that if you want the life that Jesus offers, you have to surrender your own and your own wishes and desires and follow his life. Instead of scurrying around to do what you want to do to make you happy, Jesus says, try this verse on for size. And the big idea here is you and I have a lot of work to do, and it is incredibly good work. Now, how many have your Bible apps open? Ready? Sword drill. Let's go. John 20, verse 30. That's backwards in the Bible. Chapter 20, verse 30 says this, Now Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, which is a fascinating thing to think about. Like, there's more? But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. When you ask a Christian, well, let me ask you, what does it mean to be a Christian? You don't have to answer, but usually what you get is some kind of creed, some kind of list of things that you have to believe, a doctrine that defines what you and I have to do in order to believe. And those things are good. It's true. 
Those are very true. But is it the whole story? No. Oftentimes what we end up doing because of our nearsightedness is we condense salvation into a certain belief about this and a belief about that. And if you believe all of these things, you can be a part of our community. And then if you don't, then, well, you're not in. But what does John 20, 31 say? It says that when you believe, you are brought into the life in his name. It's not all about right believing, even though that is very important. You are called and we are called to understand what exactly we are, how we are supposed to believe, and the, the Bible tells us what we're supposed to believe about God. However, there's this thing that right believing leads to what? Right living. Are we tracking? Did I lose you somewhere? There's this idea that you can say something with your mouth and it doesn't matter how you live your life. As long as you have the right answer, then you're in. The problem is that Scripture nowhere teaches that. The Bible says that believing in Jesus will lead you, to an auto, lead you automatically to living a certain life. Is it perfect? No. Will you sin? Absolutely. Maybe this morning on your way in. We all do. That's why we have forgiveness, and, and 1 John tells us that. But this new nature that you received when you said yes to Jesus draws you in to this life. And that's what Paul is saying. He says, you're not served by works. Instead, you're, served, you're, you're saved for them. You're saved for the works. You're saved for service. If your Bibles are still out, now go back over to James. Uh, pass Ephesians. Go over to James and stop at chapter 2. James chapter 2, verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can such faith save them? In the original language, this is one huge rhetorical question with the obvious answer of, uh-uh, nope, can't happen. So verse 15 continues. So suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of, them, if, if one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, but does nothing for the physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, it if it's not accompanied by action, is what? Dead. It's not life. It's death. What does right believing call us to? Right living. We orient ourselves around what we truly believe, and when we begin to that, we'll take on a lifestyle of Christ, which was to serve the people around them. Jesus said he came to seek and save the lost, and he served people on his, in his life. What James tells us is that our lives and how we serve one another is vitally important to our faith. It's more than just knowing the right answers. It's more than just saying a prayer. It's more than just checking the box of church attendance. James shows us that if your verbal profession and the way you live disagree, which one speaks louder? The way you live. The way you live speaks louder than your theology statement. You're not saved by works. You're saved for them. What we do matters. Now, this is fun. Go all the way back to the end of the Bible, the big bad book of Revelation. We're all afraid of the last half of this book, but the first, the first half has some cool things. In Revelation chapter 2, there's this picture of Jesus going for a walk, and he's decided he's going to visit the seven churches, and he's having a great time. He's walking around, and he says this phrase, I know your deeds. 
I know what you're doing. If you're a movie fan in the 90s, I know what you did last summer. I know what you're up to. And he says this in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 19. We won't read them all, but he gets to the bottom and says, I know your deeds. And he gets to chapter 3. Hey, look, I know your deeds. Later in chapter 3, verse 8, I know your deeds. You seeing a theme here? Different church, same message. Verse 15, I know your deeds. So Jesus goes for a walk and he says, I know what you're up to. And there are some where he's going, you guys are doing great. But for these four, they're like, hey, I know what you're doing. I know your deeds. You have a reputation, he says to one church, of being alive. But the reality is you're dead. There's no life going on. You say the right things. You believe the right things. You say you have Jesus in your life, but it's not doing anything. I know your deeds is not something that you want Jesus to say when he shows up to your church on a Sunday morning. It's a very scary thing to do. Now, Jesus is concerned about not your doctrinal statement being worded perfectly, not your song selection or the type of coffee that you serve today is Starbucks. He's not concerned about that, even though there is a lot of concern about coffee in our, on our end. Jesus isn't concerned. What we think when we come to this idea of work, we automatically say, Works are bad. And Paul is saying, but we have stuff to do that's good. And in those works, you and I will find life. One last time, or there might be a couple more, but go backwards to Hebrews. And if you're not getting acquainted with how to train, uh, find verses in your Bibles, uh, today's a crash course. Go back to Hebrews. Hebrews says this in, verse, in, in chapter 10. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. So the writer of Hebrews, she's saying this, she's saying, look, when you get together, there are things that you should do together. Don't ever stop meeting together, she'll say earlier. But here, you have, you have a job to do to spur one another on. And I realize the problem with this word good deeds is we automatically think it's Boy Scout, right? Like I'm trying to get my son to wheel in our neighbor's trash can. She's uh, an older woman. She's a widow. And so it's like, Judah, go wheel in Miss Pam's trash can. And he'll come back and say, I did a good deed. And I went, yeah, you did. Because he did. And for him, it's awesome. And he feels good about it. Miss Pam thanks him with cookies which are delicious, but it's more than just a Boy Scout way of living. That's what we think good deeds are, but what this is talking about, and there's a whole Greek and into Hebrew thing happening here, it's pointing to the radical representation of your life, not to serve your interests, not to serve your checklist, but a radical reorientation to serve other people. Everything that Paul is saying about our salvation is not just a vertical saving. It's more than just being saved from hell. It's also a horizontal in how we interact with one another. It's all relational. And the good deeds that are sitting before you are simple, everyday things. When you encounter the the most mundane activities of your life, how do you respond when you're angry is a way of a good deed. How do you treat a coworker that bugs you 
It's a good deed. It's all relational. Good deeds is never just this. Yes, I brought in someone's trash can. There's more. It's how you orient yourself. There's a posture being portrayed here. It's a posture of service. And it leads to the question, do people exist for you or do we exist for people? Do people exist to serve you and your needs, or do you exist to serve other people? I'm one of those that in, my, uh, in most of my moments, without trying very hard, I'm usually on the lookout for serving me. It's our nature. And one of the ways that God is growing me is, is, to, is to lose that way and say no to Brad. I don't live in a Brad-centric universe, although sometimes I wish we did. And you all were here for me. That's not how we're supposed to live. And you would say you live in a you-centric universe, and that's fine, and that's where arguments and disagreements and division happens. What God's saying to me, and maybe to you as well, saying, hey, it's not about you and serving your needs. You don't get to be right all the time. Maybe some of the time. Maybe once or twice a day. But it's not all about you. When I am looking at me, I find that I'm looking for names to drop. I'm looking for my reputation to build. Uh, it, it finds its way to social media. And maybe you're this way where we start tweeting and posting in order that we get the likes and we get the recognition that people are aware of. We have a celebrity craving in our culture that we want people to know our opinions. And it's, it's saying the right thing at all the right time in order for people to get you the right status. This is what we're geared to. And it's exhausting, right? Because then you're always worried about what somebody is thinking about you. And it leads to this, pride, arrogance, using people in situations in order for you to get a personal gain. So the shift comes. It's not about serving me. Instead, what these passages have shown us, it's about serving others. And I love how the writer of Hebrews says it that we gather together on a Sunday or in your small group during the week or as your group of friends. And the whole point when we gather is to what? Spur each other on to love and good deeds. This idea of spurring, it almost can be translated, annoy one another. Like the rock in your shoe that reminds you that there's a rock in your shoe. It's, it's a constant uh, hey, have you done this? You're annoying this person. In, not in a bad way, guilt way. Remember, guilt trips don't last very long. But in a way of saying, I'm encouraging you to serve other people. Why do we need spurring? Because we tend to forget. Because we become complacent. Because we start to live this self-centered life where, where we, all we start thinking about is ourselves. So annoy one another, Paul is saying, and, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, to do good things. We push one another out of this self-centered living that we are accustomed to. Our culture is very consumer-minded, right? It's in our nature. It's in our hearts. Our hearts weren't intended to be that way. But our culture has made us this way. What can I get from this? And when you don't get that, we start blaming. Well, I didn't get this because that person over there made, it, made a bad decision. And we start thinking about us instead of other people. It's in this entitlement syndrome that we all fall into, which is nothing more than self-centered thinking. 
And what Paul and Jesus say to us now is that we exist for something larger than ourselves. Following Jesus means that we are surrendering our entitlements. We think that we're entitled to health. Are you? Following Jesus doesn't always mean you'll be healthy. Remember, the person we're following ended up on a cross. And his 12 friends also ended up dead. It doesn't always mean health. We think following Jesus means that we'll get to be married. Not necessarily. Paul, single. Doesn't mean you get to be married. Following Jesus means you're entitled to be successful. No, that's not in there. These are good things, don't get me wrong. These are great things. But nowhere in following Jesus does it say that uh, by the time you're this age, you will have all of these things. That's not the gospel. It's not meant for health and wealth. It's not meant to make you feel comfortable. It's meant to radically reorient your life to serve other people as you follow Jesus. But we see these things and instantly we go, it's my right to be like this. And if I don't get this, then something's wrong with everybody else. Remember that Matthew thing. If you follow me, you've come to to lose your life. And in losing your life, what will you find? Your real life. So we get rid of these rights and these entitlements that we're all accustomed to and radically reorient, saying, nah, this, it's not about me. Following Christ means that all of a sudden we come to him and say, I'm entitled to you, Jesus, and how you've gifted me. And now I'm entitled to follow with what you've laid out in front of me. That means your gifts and your talents, your sexuality, your cars, your job, your money, our jobs, our dreams, our children, everything is laid on the table in front and saying, Jesus, it's for your disposal. It means we no longer live in an us-centered world. We live in a Christ-centered universe. Yes to him doesn't mean that you just get forgiveness from sins. It means that you're out on his, you're being used however he wants to use you. And that's the end of the story. I like the show The West Wing, and they say this phrase all the time when they're talking about what the, they serve the president, right? And uh, they always say, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Even when they do something they don't want to do, I serve at the pleasure of the president. Okay, I'll go do this. And then if you know the story, CJ has to go say something that she didn't want to say. But it's the same thing here. We serve at the pleasure of our Savior Christ. This is our calling. And the temptation we have is to have Jesus exist for us instead of us exist for him. The reality is it's that way, not the other way around. When this happens, when we start thinking that Jesus exists just for us, we start getting angry when our prayers aren't answered the way we want them to be answered. We start getting frustrated, which leads to the riddle of the day. Do fish know that they're wet? Do they know that they're wet? No, they don't. They know when they're getting dry. That's why they flop all around when they get on the boat. Fish don't know that they're wet. Hold on to that. Because they're surrounded by water all of the time. They have no idea that they're in water until they're out of water. And now they realize that they're supposed to be in the water. 
you and I are like fish in our culture. We're surrounded by this consumer, me-centered world, and you and I don't even realize that we're in it until something happens where we're shaken awake going, oh my goodness, this is our culture. We're thrown, we're born into this culture and it becomes difficult for us to realize what we're swimming in. Our culture says that your desires become your gods. Your sexuality becomes your choice. Whatever you want to be is now yours to choose because it's about you and your life and your thoughts and your feelings and anything you want to feel that day, you're allowed to have it. The scriptures look at that and go, no. We are existing to serve Christ. Ecclesiastes says to love the Lord and serve him all your days. That's why you're here. That's the purpose of your life, to serve him all of our days. So as long as we think, as long as we don't hurt anyone, we can be okay. As long as we destroy ourselves and not every, anyone else, that's fine. It's not what the scripture says. We're meant to thrive. How do you thrive? By surrendering who you are and taking on who Jesus says you are. Our culture says don't commit to anyone or anything. The only commitment you should have is to be non-committal. It's not what Christ says. Jesus says let your yes be yes. Our culture says do what is convenient. Romans says put your life on the altar. Only do things that give you the most return, not what uh, the, the most return on investment. Don't worry about what you bring. And Jesus says bring your best to me. So it's natural that we have this attitude. Why? Because we're all fish swimming around in this idea of consumerism. The gospel is for me. God is for me. Church is for me. Everything that I have is for me. And so we approach church and God, or we approach church and say this, uh, what programs do you have to serve me? And, and I mean, it's a, it's a fair question. I've asked it too. Uh, and when we don't find the answer that we want, usually we'll go, okay, I'm going to try and find something else. And then we move on and we go to the next place. What, what do you have to serve me? And I'm almost tempted to say this whenever I get that question. Oh, yeah, we have a class called Death to Self. It's offered every other month. It's followed by what would it look like to live pure and holy lives? And then what would it then be look like to live on 10% of your income? Uh, that's what the temptation is to say. Our challenge is that we take these things radically and start to surrender this self-centered heart of ours and surrender it to Jesus, and then we'll find that life truly begins. You're all shaped for something. We're shaped for service. Paul, if you have your Bible still open, go back to Ephesians. Go to chapter 4. This is one of like the five verses where Paul tells us the various gifts that we have. Uh, this gift, this is not exhaustive. There are gifts that aren't even mentioned here and, and other places. In verse 11, so Christ gave himself to the apostles. Uh, Christ gave him, oh, so Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelism, pastors, teachers, to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. In other places, you'll see things like leadership uh, and, and, and other acts of service. There's prophecy, there's tongues, there's prayer. There's a whole list of gifts, and every single one of you have something. And it's not listed. Don't worry, you're still, you're still being able to be used. In Exodus, uh, 
God used, filled in person with the Holy Spirit, gave him a gift so that he built the temple. You won't find construction listed here, but construction is a spiritual gift. Anything that you have and that you do that can point someone to Christ is a spiritual gift. If you are an accountant and you're good at it and it through somehow through tax season, you're able to point someone to Jesus using an Excel spreadsheet and they're not angry at the government by the end of it, that's a spiritual gift. You're pointing them to Christ. So when you look at this list, it's, it's not saying that these are the only things that you can do. You might be gifted in other areas that's not listed and your gift and your talent that you have has the ability to point someone to Jesus. That is your spiritual gift. And Paul is listing this to say that we are all shaped and equipped and gifted so that we can serve one another. Living how we are created will bring us a deeper fulfillment in life. You can translate this word service to ministry. And if someone does ministry, what are they called? Servants. Ministers are servants. All of us are servants, which means all of us are ministers. So congratulations, this is your commissioning service. If I can ordain you all, I will. Like that, we are all sent as ministers to the world around us. We are supposed to be preparing people to meet the Lord and for works of service. This is why you exist. This is your calling to be a servant of Christ. Hebrews says to spur each other on with these gifts. Ephesians say that you were created to do this. Jesus says in Matthew, let your light and your works shine in such a way that people know who I am, not who you are. In fact, he goes on this big warning. Don't go fasting and making yourself look awful. So everyone says, are you fasting, brother? And you go, yes, I am. Because who got the attention on that? You did. And Jesus ends it by saying, yeah, you got all. He got everything you wish for. You got the attention. No, he says when you do your acts of service, do them with the intention of lifting Jesus's name, not your own. This is what we're supposed to be living like. Do you see the thread that weaves in and out of Scripture? It's not listed in one three verses. It's listed throughout the whole Bible. You were created for service, fundamentally. If we are to be a people who war against the consumer nature that's inside of us, we must start operating with this assumption in mind. Our everyday lives must take on this posture. You are ministers. You are servants of Christ Jesus wherever you go and whatever you're doing. Serving isn't something that we do. It's someone we are. The biblical picture isn't a church where people come to be served the biblical picture of a church all through Acts is a bunch of people released in power to serve the world. It's a bunch of people released and unleashed to change the, the world around them. And there are two viewpoints that we could take out moving forward. One is that we begin to see ourselves as the servant of the gospel no matter what you're doing and no matter where you find yourself. When you see life this way, your most mundane tasks are changed. The other view is that you begin recognizing that within the doors of this church, all of you have at least one spiritual gift. It's a divine enablement which, which you are gifted and called to use in the context that it would benefit the body of Christ, or as we call it, the church. 
In fact, Paul will say in other places, uh, later in Ephesians actually, that if you don't use your gift, the body of Christ is impoverished. You grieve the Spirit. I gave you this gift to use for these people, and you're not using it, and it, it makes it Spirit sad. We have gifts to use, and it's a big deal if you don't use your spiritual gift. For those of you who love to teach, there are places to teach. For those of you who like to lead Bible studies, there's places to exercise that kind of leadership in small groups. For those of you who, who say, I, I really like kids, but I'm just afraid to, to serve, and, and then, I, then I'm with kids all day. Yeah, that's why it's a sacrifice. Yes. But there are ways to serve where we point our littlest members to who Jesus is. And it stops being about you. It starts being about their lives and who they are. For others, you have the gift of discernment where it's ho- or, or hospitality where you can express those gifts for the betterment of the church. There are ways to use the way that you're wired to serve the church. And when we serve the church and when we serve each other, mainly, it enables the church to fulfill its mission to be a place of hope, grace, and healing. Where Jesus is praised, lives are changed, and the Spirit is working, and God is glorified. You have a part to play. You have a new identity, Paul tells us. You have a family that you're called into. And then he says, you have a mission. You have stuff to do. There are areas in this church that need you and how you've been gifted. Instead of walking into a place, whether it's uh, your church or small group, and saying, what can I get? What if the change is, how can I step into what God is doing in this place or in any place, and how can I live my life so that people will be changed? Because the world needs you. It needs you to think of them. So where do we begin, right? Sometimes in this world, we can be paralyzed by choices. We say, we're designed to serve. We've been fit for service. We're, 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 We're shaped in a certain way. And then you go, oh, but I don't know where to start. Start at home the people who live with you? How can you serve them? Maybe it's your roommates. If you live by yourself, maybe it's your neighbor. How can I serve these people? How can I get over myself and serve them? Uh, Paul goes on in, in, in Corinthians, and he's talking about giving, and he's, it's a fundraising letter if you look at it closely. And he's saying, hey, look, these people over here have given a lot, and when they find out that you haven't given any, and at this point it's, it's about more than money, and he's saying, if they find out you haven't given any, that's going to look really weird because they don't have anything, and you have a lot, and, and you have a lot of gifts, and you're not even doing anything. So Paul uses this phrase. He says, We're, we, we give and we step in to where God has given you the grace to do so. And that can be taken this way, or I like to take it this way. Uh, it, not every single one of us is called or gifted or desire or, or have that, that calling to serve the homeless population in Seattle or in Shoreline or at Edmonds, wherever you are. There, it, it's a problem everywhere. But some of you are. And what's that? That's the grace that God has given you. This is what Paul's saying. Respond to the grace that has been put on your heart in order to do. We've all been given some kind of grace. Now, not everyone will say, sign me up to to wrangle the kids down there. There's two of them that might be out of hand in their mind. Sign me up for them. Not everyone has that kind of grace. It takes a special person. 
But if you have it, we respond to it. We can't respond to everything. You'd be more exhausted than anything, but you respond to what God has put on your heart to do. And I tell you, it's the very first step to saying yes is the hardest one. But once you say yes, I'm going to step into where God has given me the grace, whether it's serving the homeless population, volunteering with Camp Woodridge, being a small group leader, being in a small group, whatever it is, when you step into it, what you find is your life begins to go, oh, this isn't about me. I'm serving the people around me. We see this. There's a, a few couples in our, in our congregation that have volunteered with World Relief, and they've taken in refugees. It was a big step, but God had put on their hearts, hey, these people are, I'm heartbroken for them. That's the grace that God has given them. And they responded. They, they redid their house so that they can house some of them for, for a specific time and help them get on their feet. And what they say is like, man, I, I'm alive through this because God's given them grace and they're living outside of their own world and now they're stepping into the world that God has for them. There they are, the children. Uh, But we all have been given a grace to respond to. You might look around here and go, oh, they might need help with sound and lights. Okay, that's a grace that God, that's the first step. I need to do that. You might look around and there might be something that we're not doing that you go, you know what? God has given me the grace to start this kind of ministry. Awesome. I want to help you. I can't do it for you, but I can give you whatever you need to enable you in order to do so. My job in this way is to be an enabler for you to be a minister because that's what you're called to do. Because if I do it, that's just another program. If you do it, it's your ministry and you get to do it and you get to be uh, filled by it and love it and take part in it and watch it grow. This is what we were created for. We all have a shape. We're all paintbrushes, we're all hammers, we're all nails, we're all shovels. We all have a purpose in this life. And when we start living into the way that we've been shaped and called, that is when life begins. And the invitation for you today is to say, God, how have you shaped me in this world? What is something I can do? What is something that I can give back? And it is going to be scary to do so. But in that, like Jesus says, when you surrender your life, what you find in return is actual life. For you were created in Christ Jesus to do good stuff. So let's get to work. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you've shaped every single one of us uniquely and specifically with the calling and gifts and talents, whether they are seen by many or seen by a few, whether it's around a table and good food and hospitality, or if it's making sure the microphone works, whether it's helping... Uh, the unhoused population find work and showers and meals or housing a group of, uh, of refugees who have been forced from their country. You've shaped us all in unique ways, leading a Bible study to leading a game. And God, we live in this culture that tells us everything's about us and me and what I can get out of it. Lord, you tell us, no, 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 no. It's not what you can get. It's what you can give. And you take this whole thing and you flip it upside down. 
so Lord, right now, when your spirit is working in this room, it has been since the beginning of time, would you begin to show us how you have gifted us? What are the things tugging on our hearts that, you know what, I think the Lord's calling me to this. Lord, would you give us the courage to start it? May we be marked by what we do and not only by what we believe. And in this, may we find life. It's in your name we pray.